I have only a short time to live, only one death to die, and I will die fighting for this cause. There will be no peace in this land until slavery is done for. These are the words of militant abolitionist John Brown in 1856, a person whose actions will draw the nation closer to war than ever before. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. At a gathering of abolitionists in October 1857, Henry Wilson sat next to a gentleman who had been on the ground fighting in Kansas. That man's name was John Brown. Wilson had been critical of Brown's extremist tactics, and the two men got into a verbal squabble at the dinner. The two men departed, and Wilson went on to warn others of Brown and his fanatical hopes. We'll put a bookmark here and come back to John Brown later in the episode. In March 1858, Senator James Henry Hammond of South Carolina rose to give a speech. Hammond had replaced Andrew Butler, the cousin of Preston Brooks, the representative who attacked Charles Sumner. In a little over 6,000 words, Hammond's speech titled, Cotton is King, made a firm defense of slavery attacked northern workers, charging that their purpose was to primarily serve the South, and argued that there would always be a lowest rung of laboring men in a society, and that the poor men of the North served the same cultural purpose as enslaved people did in the South. Henry Wilson, listening in the chamber, was outraged, taking the attack on northern laborers personally, and being reminded of his days being a part of that lowest class of men. Wilson was so upset, he shouted at Hammond towards the end of the speech. As soon as the South Carolina senator finished, Wilson got to work, writing a rebuttal. With his own re-election coming up, Wilson needed to show Massachusetts and the nation his passion and power. On March 20th, just 17 days after the Cotton is King speech, Wilson delivered his own speech, Our Working Men Slaves. Wilson defended the North through making comparisons to the South. Wilson touted the strength of the Northern economy and attacked the South's poverty. He compared the high wages of working men and women in the North to the South's minimal wages for the lower-class white workers and the complete lack of wages for millions of blacks. He celebrated the push for universal education in the North and brought shame to the laws restricting education in the South, especially the laws making it illegal to educate enslaved people. Wilson said, quote, Go home. Say to your privileged class what you vauntingly say leads progress, civilization, and refinement that in the opinion of the hireling laborers of Massachusetts, if you have no sympathy, for your African bondmen, in whose veins flow so much of your own blood, you should at least sympathize with the millions of your own race, whose labor you have dishonored and degraded by slavery." End quote. 
In the speech, Wilson also argued against the admittance of Kansas under the pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution. Our working men slaves was met with great applause from northern men and emphasized to the laboring men of the nation Wilson's alignment with them and making it seem his fate in the Senate was secure. It was around this time that Wilson wrote to the chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party asking for the appointment of Erasmus Moore, a friend from Wilson's early days in Natick, a sign Wilson never forgot his early roots. Wilson wrote, quote, He was a minister in Natick when I went there 24 years ago and in a position of influence and power. I made his acquaintance, and he was to me a friend at a time when I had neither friends or power in the town or state. His kindness to me was of great value, and I am not the man to forget an act of kindness." End quote. While Wilson's chances of being re-elected were good, other senators weren't so fortunate. In the later half of 1858, Illinois and the nation was wrapped up in the debates between Senator Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. The series of debates, known as the Lincoln-Douglas debates, were published in papers across the nation and centered around the questions of slavery. Just before the seven debates across the state, Lincoln gave one of his most iconic speeches at his nomination, his House Divided speech. Quote, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the House to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it should become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Have we no tendency to the latter condition? End quote. While the debates were mostly about slavery, they weren't arguing over whether it was good or bad. Both men were in part opposed to slavery. And as noted in the last episode, around this time, Wilson wanted to coerce Douglas into a coalition because of his opposition to slavery in regards to the Lecompton Constitution. The debates were more about what role slavery should have in the nation and the future of race in America. At the time, though free, Illinois was a deeply racist state, easily swayed by racial fears. Douglas used this to his advantage and launched racial attacks towards Lincoln in an attempt to stoke fears over Lincoln's more liberal views of African Americans. Lincoln was coerced into thoroughly explaining his views regarding racial equality. Here's a quote from Lincoln explaining his abhorrent views of racial equality. Quote, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, 
which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. I say upon this occasion, I do not perceive that because the white man is to have the superior position, the negro should be denied everything. I do not understand that because I do not want a negro woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife." Lincoln's purported position here is one that historians still debate today in regards to whether these were his true feelings or whether or not these were said to appeal to the people of Illinois. Either way, these views of white supremacy were not at all uncommon. While Northerners generally opposed slavery, they also opposed black people. At every corner of their existence in America, people with black skin were treated with racism and violence. The views of race at this time must be analyzed through the lenses of the day. It's most likely that Lincoln and other anti-slavery politicians strategically played down their hopes for racial equality, as in the years during and following the war, many of the same figures who expressed statements like Lincoln's, including Lincoln himself, expressed contrary views, attempting to expand and promote racial equality. When examining Wilson's views of racial equality, it's clear that regardless of how he might have viewed the position of black Americans in the racial hierarchy, he always advocated for equal rights under the law. In Wilson's early years in the Natick Debating Club, just one of the men, not Wilson, believed in total racial equality. By the time he was in the Senate, his views had progressed towards racial equality. A sign his views were genuinely evolved, as it would have been more politically expedient to deny racial equality at this time. In a speech in 1860, Wilson said that he believed in the inferiority of other races, but believed that no one should be treated differently, saying, quote, I believe in the equality of all men of every race, blood, and kindred, end quote. In Wilson's later years, his beliefs in equality would expand to women as well. Wilson also wrote around this time that he intended to stand up for the treatment of the Native Americans in the West. Even before the war, when most in the North were brutally racist, Wilson was concerned about the treatment of black people in Massachusetts. In a letter, Wilson wrote, quote, There is prejudice and there is unjust prejudice. In regard to men of intelligence and of personal character, men in every proper sense of the word, highly respectable, I do not think in social life they are fully recognized. That colored men with the same intellectual qualities, the same moral qualities, are not in Massachusetts regarded as they would be if they were white men." End quote. In the election of 1858, Wilson was re-elected to the Senate without opposition. In the race in Illinois, Lincoln lost, with Stephen Douglas elected for another term in the Senate. 
The 36th Congress began in 1859, and by 1861, when it would end, many of their members would not return. When not focused on slavery, the Senate was engaged in another sectional debate, this time over the Pacific Railroad. Northerners wanted the railroad to go through the northern route, Southerners the southern, and some in Missouri advocated for a central route. Wherever the path went, great economic prosperity would follow. Wilson preferred for the railroad to take the northern route, but was open to a central one that would go through Missouri, allowing for both the north and south to be accommodated. Wilson wanted to build the railroad using only government resources and pay for it through government bonds in order to limit the tax burden on the country and decrease the risk of corruption, a fear Wilson would be vindicated on. Wilson believed the South was untrustworthy in the planning of the railroad and feared that whichever path they advocated for was intended to benefit a Southern Confederacy should the Union break apart. The railroad debate prompted fears of disunion to be more openly espoused. For now, no solution was reached and the debate over the railroad was postponed to a later day. In the preceding years, the issue of slavery remained a constant, though the events of late 1859 proved to be some of the most provoking when John Brown brought his violence from Kansas to Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Well, Brown was born in Connecticut in 1800, removed to Ohio at a very early age. Um, his father was a very active abolitionist, very active in anti-slavery movement. Um, as a young man, Brown had witnessed a young slave nearly his same age being beaten, and Brown would go on later to say um, that you know this singular event is what really uh, galvanized him into you know what he called like a most determined uh, abolitionist and made him swear an eternal war with slavery. This is the voice of John Eric Gallow. You'll also be hearing from Kevin Pollack. Both co-wrote John Brown's Raid, Harper's Ferry, and the Coming of the Civil War. October 16th through 18th, 1859. Well, my name is John Eric Shalow. Um, I'm a, an archivist and an amateur historian from Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, I'm a historian with emerging civil war, and I'm active in just various uh, historical and, and archival groups. I'm an archivist and records manager for my day job. Um, and then uh, I've been working with Kevin for several years now on on this book that will hopefully see the light of day in 2022. Um, so I'm, I'm Kevin Pollack. I'm also with the Emerging Civil War. That's how I met John Eric. And it's uh, it's been great pleasure working with him on, on the story of John Brown's raid. Uh, I came to John Brown's raid working as a seasonal park ranger at Harper's Ferry National Historical Park for a couple of summers uh, from 2012 to 2014. And now I work as a uh, historic site manager for Prince William County's Office of Historic Preservation, managing two historic sites in Manassas, and then work as a, a battlefield guide to the Antietam National Battlefield as well. Both will help tell the story of John Brown and the violence at Harper's Ferry. You really start to see Brown become a little bit more militant with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, uh, and again with the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Um, Brown's, uh, several Brown sons moved to Kansas uh, in 1855, uh, told Brown of all the troubles they were having out there with the pro-slavery men. So Brown himself moved out there in October 1855. Um, 
this is where Brown, you know, gets on the radar of a lot of people at Pottawatomie Creek, uh, where uh, Brown and six men, including several of his sons, abducted five men um, and you know, murdered them with broadswords. Um, next to Harper's Ferry, that's probably what Brown is most well known for. John Brown's, you know, raid on Harper's Ferry for all the, it lasts, it's just 36 hours. Um, there's a lot more that goes into it and really years of, of thought um, and planning. And, and I think Brown always had his eyes set on something greater than what he was doing throughout the 1850s, even out in Kansas. Um, and he talked about carrying the war into Africa was his, his thought of rather than being out in Kansas and protecting free soil or fighting for free soil of, of carrying the war into the slave states um, as he viewed it ultimately. And so uh, Brown did a couple of things. He was, you know, throughout the late 1850s, he was out recruiting. He, he met a lot of people in his travels uh, between going from Kansas and, and back out East and into Canada at a time uh, for a time as well. And so he made a lot of companions, uh, people that shared views similar to his and so Brown slowly began to, to gather up um, basically people that he could call on uh, for a larger expedition against slavery that, of course, resulted in his Harper's Ferry raid in October uh, of 1859. Brown uh, had, had much larger plans than just a small raid in the small little town of Harper's Ferry. He drafted up a provisional constitution uh, as well for a, a future country. Uh, where slavery would be abolished. And so Brown really had put a lot of thought uh, and a lot of time into the grander picture of things. But maybe once we, we get more into it, um, we can talk about maybe some things where Brown might have been looking at the 20,000 foot view of his raid, but maybe not so much down into the, the smaller details of what he planned once he got to Harper's Ferry. And like, like Kevin mentioned, you know, he put together this group of people that he could call on. These were impressionable, you know, that, you know, he had several sons, um, son-in-law. Um, these were uh, impressionable young men, much younger than I am. Um, you know, Brown was 59 at the time of the Harper's Ferry raid. The next, uh, the next oldest recruit next to him was Dangerfield Newby, about 39 years old. Uh, about where I'm at today, most of these guys were in their 20s. They were impressionable. Uh, some of them were looking for adventure. Uh, some of them were avowed abolitionists. So, but to some some extent, some more than others. Uh, but that's what I stress with these guys is they were impressionable. So Brown arrives in the area July 4th, 1859, um, acting as a land speculator as, um, under the alias of uh, Isaac Smith. Uh, he rents a farmhouse called the Kennedy Farm, which if anybody has not been out there, I would highly suggest going out to see it. It still stands with Brown's headquarters, uh, as it's called today. Uh, where he, he planned a raid with 21 other men, uh, a mixed force of, of black and white men. Um, some of Brown's daughters came down to help uh, situate the force uh, early on and slowly one by one, Brown was bringing in, calling on these colleagues, these men, uh, young, young men, as John Eric mentioned in many cases, uh, to, to start his raid in the night of October 16th, uh, after months of scouting preparation. Uh, Brown tells his men uh, about, uh, well, after dark that night, the night of October 16th, uh, men get on your arms, we will proceed to the ferry. And uh, armed with Sharps carbines that had been uh, supplied to them by members of the Secret Six, a wagon full of pikes, about a thousand pikes, uh, Brown's men made their way into Harper's Ferry uh, late that night. They very quickly fanned out throughout the town. 
capturing um, buildings in the United States Armory, which is what Harper's Ferry was known for at the time. And more importantly, part of the reason that Brown was there as well was not just the uh, enslaved population around Harper's Ferry that he could utilize for his plan, as we talked about earlier, but the arsenals, the two arsenal buildings were housing about 100,000 firearms at that point. Uh, when Brown arrives in October of 1859. So his men very quickly seize the armory, they seize the arsenal buildings, they fan out to Hall's Rifle Works on uh, Virginia's Island, um, just outside of town, and then some of Brown's men even made their way several miles west of Harper's Ferry, headed in the direction of Charlestown. They captured a few prominent civilians, including uh, Lewis Washington, who was a relative of George Washington, captured some of Washington's relics uh, along with that, some of Washington's slaves, and uh, made their way back towards Harper's Ferry. And uh, when, when the sun rose the next morning, October 17th, and slowly one by one, armory workers began leaving their homes, going to work at the armory, uh, in many cases being captured or being shot at. That's when civilians started to wake up and realize that something wasn't exactly right. And so a couple of civilians began raising the alarm pretty quickly. Uh, one of them, Dr. John Starry, who rode uh, out west all the way towards Charlestown to try and raise uh, the alarm, get militia units to respond. Civilians responded slowly one by one uh, in small groups, and slowly those small groups became much larger groups. They gathered uh, atop Camp Hill, just west of the lower town of Harper's Ferry, and uh, throughout the day of the 17th, sporadic shots were fired. Between the two sides, casualties uh, came about. Uh, Dangerfield Newby, perhaps one of the more better known uh, of Brown's raiders, is going to be killed in the raid. Fontaine Beckham, the mayor of Harper's Ferry, is one of those civilians that's killed by Brown's men. Um, there will be uh, a multi-pronged attack by some of the local militia including the Jefferson County Militia, the Martinsburg Militia, that's uh, gonna drive Brown's forces uh, away from Hall's Rifle Works into the Shenandoah River, where a couple of them will be shot in the middle of the river, uh, drive Brown's men out of the arsenal buildings and ultimately Brown's force, what's left of it, is going to um, huddle within the confines of what becomes known as John Brown's Fort, which historically was the fire engine house for the United States Armory. And that was the situation that Brown's men were in uh, by the night of October 18th. Um, of course, the alarm had been raised much further away, uh, thanks to the telegraph, thanks to trains coming through Harper's Ferry that Brown initially held hostage and then he let go. Uh, as soon as those trains reached Telegraph Station, the telegraph was uh, ringing with news of armed insurrectionists at Harper's Ferry. There was a lot of question about how many there were and who exactly was leading these men. Word made its way back to Washington, though, um, late on the 17th, early on the morning of uh, October 18th. And uh, shortly that, after that morning, uh, Lee organized an attack by the Marines uh, against the fire engine house. Initially, they went in with sledgehammers and bayonets because Brown did have some uh, civilian captives inside the firehouse, and, and Lee was worried about uh, those captives being injured or killed uh, in the assault. And so the Marines went in with sledgehammers and bayonets. The sledgehammers weren't enough to break down the, the great large wooden doors of the fire engine house. And so they found a very stout ladder laying in the yard, the armory yard. They were able to uh, get a hole, a small enough hole for men to crawl through one at a time into the fire engine house. And after a very brief uh, but intense fight inside the fire engine house there itself, 
Uh, one Marine was uh, killed, uh, Private Luke Quinn, and Brown himself was wounded multiple times, uh, later incapacitated, and then the raid came to a, uh, an end, again, just 36 hours after it all uh, began the night of October 16th. When Wilson learned Brown had done this, he was enraged. While more radical anti-slavery figures celebrated the attack, Wilson abhorred it as a step in the wrong direction. Wilson objected to any activities outside of the law to attack slavery. Wilson told Brown himself the year before that, quote, I am opposed to all violations of law and to violence, believing that they put a burden on the anti-slavery cause, end quote. Uh, but of course, throughout the South, I think there was quite a bit of panic uh, um, that was going on. And, you know, I, I think John Eric talked about Ken Burns' Civil War, uh, which we all know so well earlier on. And it, it really does a good job of painting that, you know, the, the militia systems in the South were there. They did exist. But prior to Brown's raid, it was nothing like a militaristic organization. Uh, and, and those things really started to change in the weeks and months uh, and even you could say the days uh, following Brown's raid that the militia from all across the state of Virginia were brought to Charlestown to try and protect um, Brown, protect the area. And by protecting Brown, I should say, by making sure that Brown didn't escape or that somebody came in to try and, and free him. Um, so you, you see, I kind of view it as a lot of mixed reactions. I think people view Brown again as almost a sympathetic figure uh, because of how you know, he, he was very polite to the people around him. Um, and, and as John Eric mentioned, he was a very charismatic guy. People were drawn to him uh, for whatever reason, even if they disagreed with his, his viewpoints on slavery um, and other things. And, and Brown would just continue to mold his image the way he wanted to be viewed uh, in those last six weeks of his life, ultimately, uh, from November until early December of 1859. Yeah, I, I would echo that. You know, in the days immediately following the raid, I think those who knew Brown uh, almost feared for their lives. You know, some of the, several of the Secret Six fled the country. Uh, Garrett Smith went to hide in an insane asylum. Um, but as you get closer to Brown's execution, and especially after his execution, where you had the two camps before, that way, you know, one camp was militaristic and the other was, you know, we're going to do this, the legislative process or the social or, or, or through uh, you know, social activism. Um, but you see more of them um, uh, come and be sympathetic after. And then especially in, in years in later years, uh, you see more people wanting to attach themselves to John Brown, that they knew Brown or uh, that they had interactions with him or that they helped him. Um, so uh, definitely more sympathetic uh, in the, uh, the days and weeks and years after. Wilson believed Brown had caused a sure Republican loss in the 1860 election, a race that would prove to be one of the most influential in history. Wilson felt that the violence cast a bad image on anti-slavery fighters and risked their legitimacy as political actors. Though opposed at the time, by the 1870s, Wilson had changed his views of Brown and referred to him as being heroic. Though Wilson would be proved wrong, the raid at Harper's Ferry left a lasting mark on the nation, a scar that would continue to grow deeper into the next year. In 
In today's episode of Henry Wilson and the Civil War, we cover James Henry Hammond's speech, Cotton is King, and Wilson's rebuttal, Are Working Men Slaves? We discussed the Lincoln-Douglas debates and the nuanced views of racial equality at this time. We ended through covering John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry. Thank you to John Eric Gallow and Kevin Pollack for their great help in telling the story of Harper's Ferry. Be sure to check out their book, John Brown's Raid, Harper's Ferry and the Coming of the Civil War, October 16th through 18th, 1859. Thank you so much for taking the journey through Henry Wilson's life with me. If you haven't already, I encourage you to subscribe, follow, and leave a review so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you're interested in seeing more information on Wilson's life, check out henrywilsonhistory.com. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, please email them to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com, and I will do my best to respond in a future episode. I look forward to continuing through the life of Henry Wilson.